Well, this weekend we continue our long story short series as we talk about the church. The Greek term translated as the church is the term ekklesia, and it means called out people. Now, when you look over religious history, you see another word. The German word kirche is often used. And in many ways, it's more accurate to how people think of as church today. Kirche is a location. Ekklesia is a people. You can lock the doors on a kirche. You can't lock the doors on the ecclesia of Christ. In fact, here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my called out people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We don't lock doors. We knock them down. The church becomes the church when we begin to understand that we are a called out people. Now, the beginnings of National Community Church, NCC, we started over at Giddings School. And I think it was right after Christmas time that Pastor Mark got a call early on. And it was the fire marshal saying the school didn't meet fire code. And so from one week to the next, we actually went homeless as a church. Now, it didn't mean that we ceased to exist. It just meant that we didn't have a space. But space does not equal place. And we know this, we know that we are not defined by brick and mortar, but we are people without border. And so when we went homeless as a church, something happened. We became a little less kirche and a little more ecclesia. Called out people working towards God's purposes and fulfilling his purposes. A building is made up of stagnant stone. But first Peter says that you and I, that we are living stones for God's purposes. And so today I'm not going to give this the sermon singularly, but our eight campus pastors are going to come together and we are going to walk through Romans chapter 12 verse by verse and talk about what it means to be a called out people. Here we go. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In Romans 12:1, Paul is culminating everything he said in the book of Romans from Romans 1 to this point in one passage. He is saying, basically, as we look to God as our creator in Romans 1, and we worship the creator and not created things, and as he establishes faith in the church and what it means to follow Jesus, to be baptized in water and die to ourselves and come up alive in Christ as we resurrect, so to speak, into the things of God. Also, with regard to living victoriously in the spirit and not in the flesh, that is our own will. He is saying, all of that, everything that is about our faith and the church, it's therefore now in view of all of this, in view of God's mercy, that is what Jesus has done on the cross, in view of who Jesus is, what he's done, and the mercy that he shows us, even though we don't deserve it, in view of that, let's now offer our bodies, that is our everything, our will, our strength. Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. As we offer our bodies, our everything to God, 
in view of the mercy of God, that we are now offering ourselves as living sacrifices. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice was brought to the altar and it was killed and the blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins, the atonement of sins. But God said even to the prophet Samuel, I don't desire sacrifice, I desire obedience. In other words, obedience is greater than sacrifice. God wants our obedient hearts and he wants life, not death. And so we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That is to live for God, not live unto death and therefore to die. God is saying, now live for me in view of the mercy that Jesus has shown. And it says, holy. Holy means holy, totally without blemish. Now, we aren't holy in and of ourselves. I'll be the first one to line up and say, I don't bat a thousand. I mess up. And I know you guys probably do too. That's the truth. But the holiness doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And so we offer ourselves in view of that mercy, holy to God, but also pleasing. Pleasing is our part. See, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So we can please God through obedience. And so we're being admonished by Paul to be pleasing to God. That is to obey his commands, to love him. But it's done in a way that says, you can do this in Christ. It's not in a condemning way, but in a joyful, life-giving way that we would offer ourselves pleasing to God. And then it says, this is our spiritual act of worship. So as we worship God, it's not just about music. Though that is good, we should passionately worship God in that way. As we worship God with serving, and that's good too, may we do the both and be all about honoring God with our lives, what we do, what we say, what we think, and when we don't do, say, or think what God wants us to, may we just humble ourselves and re-offer ourselves, say, God, I need you. And we offer ourselves to God in a holy and pleasing way with a, with a humble heart that says, God, you are greater than me. I give my all to you. I want to be all that you want me to be. And so we offer ourselves to God in this way, in a way that is holy and pleasing to him. So, therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is yours, this is my spiritual act of worship. To offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, is a very deliberate, willful, and purposeful act of obedience to God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul continues with this uh, act of obedience when he discusses the importance of the believers not conforming to the patterns of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That it's in that place where we're able to test and approve God's good, perfect, and acceptable will for our lives. You see, this idea of conformity that Paul mentions, it comes from having a passive spiritual lifestyle that we're just able just to go with the flow, that whatever's around us, we're molded and we're shaped in that image. Paul goes on to talk about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. This idea of being transformed is a very intentional uh, idea and a very intentional way of approaching our spiritual lives. He talks about the mind, and throughout Scripture, we see the mind mentioned consistently. We're seeing thoughts mentioned and, and how our inner man, how what's inside of us comes out when we're squeezed, when we're pressed. And so it's not by accident that Paul encourages us, us today that the believer in Christ 
should not be, tra- not be conformed to the things of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That as we fill ourselves with the things of God, as we spend time in God's word, as we spend time with other believers in Christ, that our lives are transformed. This idea of transformation uh, essentially means transfiguration or metamorphosis, that what happens inside of us impacts and affects everything outside. So the thoughts that we have, the things that we say, our actions are impacted by the transformation that takes place inside of us. You see, after that, Paul goes on to talk about being able to test and approve God's good and perfect and acceptable will for our lives. This idea of God's will means that we're essentially going to be stride for stride for the things of God. That as our lives are transformed, as our minds are renewed, that we're desiring the things of God. As Paul continues, he does this to equip us for the work of ministry. You know, it's not by accident that Paul is writing this to a group of people in the, in the, in the new church as it's developing. And for each one of us today that each one of us has a certain gift and, and has a certain talent and we're charged not to conform to the patterns of the world. You see, because the reality is we can often do the, the right things for the wrong reasons because it's what everyone else is doing or because it's the cool thing or because it's easy. But transformation, friends, family, is very intentional in nature. As Paul writes this, we're equipped for ministry to be able to do it in community with other people. And the awesome part of that is that we don't have to do it ourselves. As we take those intentional steps for transformation, as we're renewing our minds, that the Holy Spirit does the work inside of us, that the Holy Spirit molds us, that the Holy Spirit shapes us. And through that, we're able to operate in community with each other as we serve and as we take the mission that Christ has given us to to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, this idea of transformation isn't a one-time thing, but it's a continual process as we journey through life, as we align ourselves with the things of God, as we begin to desire Him even more, that this Holy Spirit transitions and, and molds and shapes us into the image of Christ. Friends, it's not by chance that Paul is writing this in the book of Romans. Friends, it's not by chance that we're hearing this today. For us, it's not to conform to the things of the world, but it's to embrace transformation. It's to renew our minds, allow ourselves to be transformed so that we can test and approve God's good and perfect and acceptable will for our lives. It is exhausting trying to be impressive, isn't it? Let's try to free ourselves of that today. Just picking up where Pastor Marion left off. I'm sure what was thoughtful and witty and funny, even though I haven't seen even the video yet. I don't think he's even recorded it yet, but uh, hey, just go with me here. Uh, Verse 2 in Romans chapter 12, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, the ancients used to describe uh, spiritual growth or the spiritual path as what was known as alternative wisdom. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the world that we live in and, and we grow up in, there it's driven by and fueled by a number of energies that fuel us to, to seek and, and 
search for success and living flourishing lives and, and happiness. And see if you could relate to any of these words. Um, ranking, grasping, uh, striving, proving, clinging, propping up. Uh, oftentimes these words are, are what we sort of step into and are, are fueled by. And so, you know, if you're like me, you wake up every morning and you try to do good. Uh, the goal is to, to try to do the right things. You try to say the right things in the boardroom and not make a mistake. And, and uh, even spiritually, I, I think most of us desire to love God, to learn to love each other better um, but, but let me see if I can think about this maybe just a little bit differently for us, us today. Um, the divine isn't playing these clinging sort of games. Spiritual growth works um, in, in what I would call this alternative wisdom. And here's what I mean by that. In Christ, when we are in Christ, I would say that God actually doesn't see what's wrong with us. What he sees is through Christ's perfection. And so he begins to see what's missing in our experience with God, not is, ne is necessarily what is wrong with us. And so the drive becomes no longer just right or wrong. The drive becomes being in right, right relationship with him. And in right relationship with him, we begin to learn to do and walk and be in those right places. And so the byproduct of that is grace. We haven't earned anything. We haven't done anything. And so the alternative wisdom to ranking and climbing and propping up and trying to see ourselves high and lifted up is this word that we use often around here. It's this word called humility. Uh, we've heard some great definitions. Uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Uh, another one that I think is not thinking highly of yourselves, but also not thinking lowly of yourselves. And what's interesting is, is our culture has actually begun to pick up the value of this alternative wisdom, this idea of walking and living in humility. The Harvard Business Review had an article that talked about uh, the number one quality in leadership, which is humility. It's a, it's a posture of learning. It's a posture of listening. It's, it's not being impressed with yourself, but I think my favorite one was from an article by Mindful, and uh, they the, the title of the article was uh, "How Humility Will Make You the Greatest Person Ever," which I think they're totally missing the point. But this is what Paul is saying in, in verse two as we continue on in this idea of what it means to be called out to be the church. We don't need to be impressed with ourselves. We can let that go. This is about walking in his ways because of what he has done for us, not what we have done for him. The church has within its capacity a diversity of gifts and a diversity of influence. It is one of the reasons why I absolutely love the church. And I love how Gabe Lyons puts it. He says, within the church, the people, all spheres of influence are represented. Government, business, media, education, etc. And leveraging our diversity of gifts in those channels is how we redeem the areas of culture that we've been called to. In verses 6 through 8 in Romans chapter 12, 
Paul is actually calling out two things. First, he says, we all have different gifts. And let me just add that even if we know people who have similar gifts as our own, the expression of those gifts varies in countless ways. The second thing uh, that Paul is saying to us is whatever those gifts are, whether they be prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, uh, leading, giving, or showing mercy, we need you to do that. The English Standard Version says, let us use them. One of the funnest and most uh, life-giving things that I get to do in addition to my pastoral role here at NCC is I get to work with individuals and teams calling out their gifts and talents. And uh, there are a couple of different assessments that you can use uh, to do this, but the premise is simply to identify your own unique wiring and how you can maximize it. Consistently, what I find on doing this work is so many people don't fully embrace their own gifts, and that's because either they don't think they have gifts or they're envying the gifts that other people have. And I think the primary reason for that is negativity and or a misinterpretation of what it means to be gifted. In our culture, we celebrate, or as Pastor Dave has said, we rank the out front gifts that have a stage or lights or name recognition, and we tend to undervalue or diminish what is unseen or what is less sexy. But you could not experience my gift of teaching right now in this moment if it wasn't for the gifts of scheduling or filming or editing or programming or anything else that I don't have a passion for or I'm not skilled to do. It is the culmination of those gifts coming together that makes what we are experiencing right now possible. I love the way Eugene Peterson uh, puts this in the message translation of the Bible in chapter 12, verse 6 of Romans. He says, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something that we're not. What Paul is saying, and he continues to emphasize this in many of his other writings to the church, is what you have is valuable and it has a place. If you make crafts, that's valuable. If you synthesize volumes of information, that is valuable. If you bake cakes, that is valuable. And I'm good at tasting, so I can help you perfect that gift. One other thing to note um, is don't think that your gift uh, has to fit into a particular category. I remember Britt Sullivan at our Kingstown campus coming to me and saying, Pastor Joshua, I don't have time to volunteer on a Sunday, but I plan meetings for the government and I know how to mobilize people. And she said, where can I help? So for the last three years, she's coordinated our biggest outreach event of the year. And she's one of those hidden figures with a valuable gift. Here's the point. The beautiful part of the church, not the building, but you and I, is that we have been empowered by God with the diversity of gifts. The church is not as strong, it's not as effective, it's not as efficient, and it's not as beautiful without your gifts. Thank you, Pastor Joshua, for calling us out to use our gifts and talents unto the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul had this style in his writing, this inspiration in his writing, in which every time he introduced the gifts, he would immediately talk about the attitude and posture in which the gifts are supposed to operate out of. We see him say immediately after introducing these powerful spiritual gifts, 
He says this. He says, if we do not operate in the attitude and posture of love, we can sound like a noisy symbol. Simply put, we can be annoying. We see Paul immediately address this in Romans 12, 9 through 10. He says this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in honor. Let love be genuine. Let it be authentic. One translation says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let's linger there for a moment. I don't think there's a human on the planet that hasn't had a moment of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is defined as having a a set of moral beliefs or standards in which someone does not operate in or practice those particular beliefs and standards. I think that's all of us, right? And I think what happens is, is when we, we position ourselves in a way that we don't allow God's love and grace in its fullest capacity to come into our lives, it's easy for us to be hypocritical. Um, we see this with religious leaders of Jesus' day. He, they immediately kind of went to hypocrisy mode uh, when Jesus was communicating who he was. And so Jesus called them out over and over again. One specific area I, I love to this day, use it all the time, um, is when he called out the religious leaders for trying to call out sin in other people. He uses this thought of a speck in one's eye. He says, hey, brothers, don't take, try to take the speck out of your brother's eye uh, before you deal with the speck in your own eye. And I think what that does is it creates this posture, this healthy posture to deal with hypocrisy. I think when we really live from the inside out, um, then we live genuine lives. And we can live genuine lives of love if we allow the love of God to enter into every single area of our lives. I believe sometimes we categorize specific areas that we want God's grace and love to enter into because there's a little shame there. Um, Maybe there's a little bit of a filter like, oh, God can't love me in that specific area. And I think what it does is when we do that, it actually hinders us from loving other people. We put up that same filter that we can't love people in specific areas because we haven't been loved by God in those specific areas. This, this concept of filter, and as, as I've been meditating the scripture, has, has risen to the surface for me and immediately took me to the social network platform known as Instagram. And, and within Instagram, they have what is called filters, uh, that when someone posts a picture, you can change the color and cue and contrast to make the picture look like what you want it to look like. And hypocrisy is that. It's creating this facade on the outside of how you want people to see you. And hypocrisy works in two ways. I think sometimes we could be hypocritical by not sharing the gospel. Something that has happened in the inside of us, we're afraid of what people think, so we don't actually share it. And I believe the call this morning, I believe it's a healthy expression of our Christian faith, is allow God's love and grace to infiltrate every single area of our lives. Uh, Every other area, financially, with marriage, with our dreams and ambitions, with our relationships. And I think when we do that, we start to experience the grace and forgiveness of God because in every area of our lives, we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God in every single area of our lives. The original way that he created something to be, we fall short. And so when we put ourselves under the glory of God, what happens is, is that we receive forgiveness and we receive God's love. And it transforms that area and it transforms it in such a way that it impacts the way that we love those around us that we love them in those areas that we've been impacted. Jesus said, he says, the, he, the person who's been forgiven the most loves the most. 
So don't we want to seek forgiveness in every single area of our lives? I think that's the call out this morning is that we will allow God to allow him to be with us. Let his presence work on the inside of us so we can posture ourselves to live out lives of genuine love. Thanks, Pastor John. Well, as we continue this passage and we look at what the church is called to do, we learn that not only are we created and called out to be devoted to love, but we're also created to passionately and enthusiastically serve those around us. We, we find this in verses 11, 12, and 13 when Paul coaches the church and he says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Well, as a church, we don't have the option to, to wait or to hesitate or to be uh, paralyzed by indecision or insecurity. No, when we see a need, we need to run to it. In fact, it's our mantra. It's our mojo at NCC, isn't it? You've heard it a thousand times before. Go set ready. It's who we are. It's what we do. And I love that Paul, in this passage, uses an analogy or a word picture to illustrate the level of enthusiasm that should be attached and should drive our service to others. In verse 11, the Greek word that he uses literally means to bubble up and to spill out or to overflow as when water reaches a boil. Now, I love that illustration because when we passionately pursue God, it can't help but reach a boiling point that overflows and spills out, soaking everyone around us. So let me ask you this question. What would your workplace look like if you and I worked hard to sacrificially serve the person in the cubicle next to us, no matter how annoying that might be? Or what would it be like if at rush hour traffic on 395, you know that person that cuts in right at the last moment without any turn signal? What if, what if we let them in? And instead of honking the horn or speeding up to get next to them, what if we just casually let them in and showed them a little bit more grace? Uh, that's tough stuff. That's hard, isn't it? I, I know if you've ever been in a car with me before, you know that there's a reason I don't have a Christian bumper sticker on my car. And, and that's simply because when I'm driving, I'm overflowing, but it's not always with hallelujahs and God bless yous. Can I, can I get an amen? So here's where we're at. We, we need to be that family. We need to be that people that sacrificially and enthusiastically serves around us. I love our Georgetown church family because they're the epitome of this verse. And so when I read this, so many faces and names come to mind. But one in particular is Danelle and Star. They're a new couple that's been a part of our church family for the last four or five months. And they've been experiencing homelessness for the last four years. And when they began attending on Sunday evenings, uh, Micah and Sarah Jones began to befriend them and instantly invited them into their home, and they'd go on double dates, and, and they begin to infuse them into the culture and the community of their church until Danelle and Star became an integral part of the fabric of who we are. But Danelle and Star didn't just receive enthusiastic service. No, they began to reciprocate and give it back. And in January, they helped us distribute several dozen oh, coats and warm jackets and blankets to, to friends that they had on the streets who were experiencing homelessness as well. That's the overflow. That's the outflow of enthusiastic and passionate service. Now, hear this. It's not about short-term emotion. It's about long-term love. So let's be that people. Let's be the church that gives and serves enthusiastically until everyone in our city and our world not only cognitively knows, 
but has tangibly experienced the overflow of God's goodness expressed by his people. Let's be the people that bubble up and spill out to everyone around us, and we do it with a smile on our face and a spring in our step. I love how Pastor Jeremy framed that, run to the need. It's who we are as a church. The next charge that Paul gives us as a church is found in verse 16, and it's very simple. It says, live in harmony with one another. Now the challenge is, how do we live in harmony with people who are pursuing God just like we are, but who have different opinions than we do? and different ideologies than we do, and different views than we do, and even different deeply held convictions than we do. How, how do we do that? And I mean, how can they even have those opinions in the first place? I mean, they're wrong, right? Not really, or maybe, uh, or maybe we're wrong, but the, the question is, how do we live in harmony? Well, I can tell you what we don't do. What we don't do is we don't raise our voice. We don't yell louder. We don't uh, uh, put people on blast. We don't criticize people. That's definitely not harmony. But if I can give you a picture of what it is to harmonize, I'd love to go with that music picture. And when we harmonize in music, it's not that we are all singing the same note. In fact, we're, we're singing different notes, and it gives us the freedom to have the differences of opinion and different viewpoints in that regard. And so when we harmonize, there's a couple things that we need to do. The first one is this. Listen for the melody. Listen for the melody, because you can't harmonize if you don't know the melody. I think one of the first things we need to do as a church is we need to stop and we need to listen. Listen to other people's story. Stop long enough, stop talking long enough to listen. And then the second thing we do when we harmonize is we identify a way to sing a different note that is in relation to the note that's already being sung. And so it gives you the freedom to be able to express your views, your ideas, your deeply held convictions differently, but they need to be in relation to what someone else is saying. And when we keep that relationship in check and in scale and in, in key and in proximity, uh, there is a fullness and a depth and a richness that is added to our voice. If I can illustrate it today with a very ordinary voice, I'd love to be able to just sing and model this for us today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But when you add another voice to that, it sounds like this. Praise Him, all creatures here below. And yet another voice or opinion or viewpoint sounds like this. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We should take it on the road, you guys. I love it. This is the expression of differences coming together in harmony. Harmony is not just the addition of two good voices, but each voice actually makes the other voice better. So in other words, thank God for Joel and Lena to work with that other third voice, right? That's called beauty out of ashes. No offense, Pastor Rob. Harmony is a beautiful thing in the midst of difference. But here's my question. What about when someone's coming at you, when they're trying to hurt you or attack you? What are we supposed to do then? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He doesn't say blessed are the peace dreamers or the peace hopers or the peace lovers because peace is made. It is not passive. It is pursued. Here's what verse 17 says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Is this not one of the hardest mandates in all of scripture though that we see? Because when that person cuts you off on the road, you just want to repay that with five seconds of your horn talking to them. Or maybe your coworker treads on your territory. You want to let that zinger fly right at him. But Jesus says, he calls us to peace and he calls us further in verse 20. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now we mistranslate this scripture right here. We think that if somebody does something against us, we can't respond. But in fact, the scripture says the opposite. It says respond, repay, but repay evil with good. What it's saying is avoiding evil is peacekeeping. Repaying evil with good is peacemaking. So respond, react, come after, answer, act, but do so with an aggressive love, cutting a new path. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Isn't this what Christ did? Romans chapter 5 verse 8, he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we came against him, He laid his life down for us. Big question is how? How do we do this? Three quick things for you today. First is this, talk to God. I've found that there's a difference between right and righteous. I can be 100% right and 0% righteous. Are you pursuing pride or are you pursuing love? Second thing is this, take the first step. Peacemaking is not passive. It doesn't sit back. It takes the lead on things. Third thing is this, choose radical love couple of quick thoughts. Repay someone yelling at you. Repay it with an affirming statement to them. It'll diffuse the situation. Or try this. Try to respond to the statement that you know they should have made instead of the statement they actually made. Or maybe do this. Decide to take their harsh criticism as helpful feedback and thank them. Or when that on the road, when you want to give that one finger salute, instead give the five finger wave. I guarantee it will diffuse the situation, but choose a different path. Martin Luther King Jr., he said this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Remember where we started this whole sermon, that the church is not a building. The church is not me and the church is not you. The church, the ecclesia is us together, a called out people, first century Judaism, the people of God. They didn't think that 
It was an individual pursuit of God to gain his heart and his ear. But they knew that corporately, if they came together and repented, then the Messiah might come. Guess who showed up? Jesus showed up. Can we stand today at all of our locations and can we respond in the same way today? We're going to sing a song called To Honor You, My King. Can we lay down our self-interest, our selfishness, our pride today? And can we lift up our voices? Can we lift up our hands in worship today? Can we lift up our hearts and become a people called out? The church. Let's worship.